I'll tell you something very interesting. I just heard this. Carl Jung, who's really the father of modern-day Western psychology, and really the founder of the uh, of the of the AA program of um, of recovery, he said at his 80th birthday party. 80th birthday party. A lot of influencers gathered to celebrate his life. And Carl Jung said that uh, although I get a lot of credit for being a trailblazer and an innovator in the world of human psychology, there's been one man that has anticipated all of my life's discoveries. And that was a great rabbi who lived 200 years ago by the name of Dovber of Mezrich, the Magid of Mezrich, the teacher of the Alter Rebbe. This is very fascinating. Carl Jung, <laughs> not a Jew. Right? He wasn't Jewish, right? Carl Jung, he was not Jewish. Thank you, Noah. Yeah, yeah, Okay, I'm just making sure. Um, you know, he, he saw that. So, there's no question, there's a tremendous amount of, of beauty and of even psychology here in Tanya. And uh, it's a beautiful thought how the Alter Rebbe was using the wisdom of Torah and of Hasidus was giving us the gift that the world itself didn't even appreciate and didn't even uh, uh, recognize at the time. And may I even say that still doesn't recognize it. The gift of the Alter Rebbe, the, the gift of the Tanya. Okay, well, dear friends, we're up to page 122 in chapter 14. Chapter 14, we're learning about how to start being a Bainini, and the message of chapter 14 were the magical words that Bainini is your goal. You could start being a Bainini today. A tzaddik is not our goal. That's going to be today's topic. Last week was a bainani is our goal. This week is that a tzaddik is beyond us. And the author of us said that every single moment of life we have a decision to make. Are we going to make a conscious choice of strength? Are we going to hold ourselves to a standard of strength? Or are we going to give in to weakness? And the author of us said what defines the bainani is that the bainani is not somebody who naturally wants to make good decisions. The opposite. The Bainini very often struggles. The Bainini very often has those temptations that tell him to do something that's improper. But what defines the Bainini is that he holds himself to a standard even when he doesn't feel it. Even when his emotions don't line up with the choices that he would like to make. So that's what we're holding right now, page 122. And what the author is going to explain to us, that a tzaddik is out of our reach. Because a tzaddik is somebody who doesn't just make good decisions. A tzaddik is somebody who is emotionally there in the right place. The tzaddik is not somebody who has to make the choice to do good and not to do bad. To do holy and not to do the unholy. The opposite. The the tzaddik is there naturally, instinctively. He has, he has no internal impulse or instinct or, or relationship or desire for anything which is not holy. And that, the altar says, is not in our deck of cards. We should, not, we should not delude ourselves that that is a standard we could reach. And the altar in a certain way is empowering us. It's okay. It is okay to make decisions which our heart is not there yet. Or 
to put it bluntly, it's okay to be inauthentic. Some people say, I can't do that because I don't feel it yet. <laughs> the Altarist says, well, I got news for you. To be feeling everything is a tzaddik. And you're not a tzaddik. And you're not going to be a tzaddik. It's okay to be sometimes a little bit inauthentic. It's sometimes okay to tell yourself, I know I really want this, and I'm not going to do it anyways. That's a very empowering thought. We are not prisoners of our desires. The opposite. So the author wants to make sure that we have a healthy perspective of what to expect of ourselves, of what life's going to look like. And the author says, we're abandoning, we're not a tzaddik. And with that, let's read. Page 122, part two of the chapter, to be a tzaddik is beyond your control. Here we go. This capacity for instant focus and control is not the case, however, when it comes to something that is up to the heart. Namely, that the bad should be truly disgusting to you in your heart and despised. For, you, for a regular human being to relate to the idea that emotionally you should be disgusted by evil, no, that's, that's not something that is easily accessible to you. Whether it is an ultimate hatred, either with an ultimate hatred, as is the case with a complete tzaddik, or he detests it but not absolutely, as is the case of an incomplete tzaddik. So for you to have this type of, this, this emotional revulsion to evil, that's not something we're asking of you, the author ever says. Now, it's like when you go on a diet. No diet tells you that I want that in, within six months, you should hate ice cream. Well, I hate ice cream. <laughs> that's a ridiculous standard to hold somebody to. You tell somebody, your goal is to stay away from it. I, I want it. I know you want it. It's okay to love it. You're human. You love ice cream. The diet is don't eat it. <laughs> so other things are the same thing. You want to be somebody who's going to be in a good place. You're naturally attracted to good decisions. And you're naturally disattracted and disgusted and repulsed by bad decisions. I'm sorry, that's not for you. You know why it's not for you? The author explains. Because this cannot be achieved in an absolutely genuine, meaning a consistent way, without a great and powerful love for God of the sort that is called love and delights. When you experience ecstasy in God, which is tasting of the world to come. That's what the sages described as seeing your next world in your lifetime. There's this idea that we regular humans don't fully relate to, which is that a tzaddik is living in a zone of pleasure. And the pleasure is a pleasure of being in God's presence. And they feel it. It's very real. The same pleasure and just sheer enjoyment that permeates every single moment of, I don't know, when you're on vacation, when you're on a cruise ship, you're on a cruise for a week. And it's just so amazing. It's just, you know, every moment of it, you're just taking it in. A tzaddik is like that 24-7 on a spiritual level. He's just, he has this, it's a love and delights. I'm just delighting and I'm basking in God's presence. A tzaddik has the world to come in this world. He's experiencing the pleasure of the afterlife in this world. If you are in that much love with God, then automatically you will have a certain disattachment to anything that compromises that love of God. And what compromises the love of God? A sin, something unholy, something inappropriate. So really, where does the tzaddik 
have this repulsion of evil because of his love for God. But such a love for God is only possible if you're a tzaddik. Which is what the author says now. But not every person merits such a thing. For it's not so much an achievement of human effort, but a kind of reward from God. Like it says, I've given you the service of your priesthood as a gift, as explained elsewhere. To be a tzaddik here, the altar lays down a very important rule. Not all souls are created with the potential, with the potential to be a tzaddik. Which means, a tzaddik is not a more developed soul than my soul and your soul. <laughs> a tzaddik is a whole different type of soul. right? Which means, it's not like our hands are not strong enough to fly. If we could only flap our hands fast enough, we could fly. No, it's not even part of, it's not in your deck of cards. It's not in your toolbox. So we have to realize, a tzaddik is not a better version of me, a higher version of me. A tzaddik soul is totally different than the average regular Jewish soul. A tzaddik is capable of having a relationship with God that is otherworldly. And we just don't have that. And that's why the tzaddik is able to love God so intensely. That's why the tzaddik has such a natural repulsion of evil and of anything negative. That's how the tzaddik works. And the altar now says, Now we can understand why Job said, Master of the universe, you created tzaddikim. Okay. In chapter 1, the altar asked a question. The Talmud quotes the words of Job. Job, of course, is the main protagonist in one of the books of the Bible, which is named Job, Eov. And Eov is a man who suffered tremendously. And that is the theme of the book of Job, of human suffering and the grappling, man's grappling with divine justice and the mysteries of God's actions and decisions. And the question of why do bad things happen to good people. And one of the things that Job says is he so to speak he's speaking to God. He says, God, how could you punish anybody? How could you reward anybody? You create tzaddikim. You create Rishayim. If they're going to be a tzaddik or a rasha, you did it. So how could you then go and start rewarding them? And the altar ever asks the very obvious question, what's Job talking about? In Judaism, we believe in free choice. <laughs> nobody, is, nobody is forced by God to be righteous. Nobody is forced by God to be wicked. Every person is born with the absolute choice and volition of what choices they're going to make in life. So what is Job saying? So the altar ever says, but now that we understand what a tzaddik is and what a rush is, now we can understand what Job is saying. Job is not saying you create people who will be a tzaddik or people who will be a rasha, who will be wicked and evil. Job is saying you create certain people with certain types of souls. Some people are born with the soul of a tzaddik, with the potential to be a tzaddik. Most people are not created that way. So Job is saying over here, yes, some people are born with a gift from God that they have certain capabilities and talents and spiritual heights, spiritual potentials that the average human has totally no access to, which is what the Altar says now. As it is taught in the Tikkun Zohar, as it is brought in the Kabbalistic texts, 
that there are many levels and qualities among the souls of Israel above. There are Hasidim, the pious ones, which means there are different types of tzaddikim. Many different uh, genres, <laughs> many different flavors of tzaddikim. One, one form of tzaddikim are called Hasidim. That doesn't mean that, you know, over here the word Hasidim doesn't mean people with black hats and long frocks. It's a, it's, it's a more spiritual definition over here. That their soul, their, 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 their righteousness is on the level of a Hasidim, the pious ones. There are mighty heroes who dominate over their impulses. There are masters of Torah. There are prophets. There are tzaddikim. Take a good look there, says the Altar. The Altar says this is the idea. Some people are created with the potential to be a tzaddik. Most people not. And since you are not born with the potential to be a tzaddik, therefore, uh, a tzaddik spiritual lifestyle is beyond you. And the ultimate point is, you be a bainani. A bainani is your potential. Make choices, even if your heart's not there. That is the essence of the life of the bainani. I'm going to make a good choice, even though I don't feel it. Okay. Now, for the rest of today's chapter, the Yatrib is going to go back to the very opening of, um, of the Tanya. The Tanya, the opening words of Tanya, chapter 1. The Yatrib quotes from the Talmud a very interesting passage that discusses that right before a soul descends from the heavens and goes into a body, to begin a life that soul stands in the heavenly court puts its right hand up now, I don't know if that's exactly how it looks but the idea is the heavenly court administers an oath to this soul that's about to begin a life and the text of the oath is and each and every one of us me and you made this oath on high before we were born be a tzaddik and do not be a Russia. That was the oath. Now that we've learned 14 chapters of Tanya, we are ready to understand what was really happening. What is the true meaning of that oath? Let's read. Decoding the oath on page 123. With this, we can understand the seemingly repetitive language of the oath that is administered before you are born, be a tzaddik and do not be a rasha. The altar says, what's going on here? It's repetitive language. Be a tzaddik and don't be a rasha. It's the same thing, no? <laughs> it seems repetitive, but it's not. It's not at all. So says the altar Rebbe. Let's read. At first glance, it seems puzzling. If they already made you swear that you would be a tzaddik, then what is the point in making you swear further that you won't be a Russia? If you're going to be a tzaddik, you for sure won't be a Russia. So what's the need for the double for the double uh, phrased oath? So the author says, oh, but here's the point. When you swear I'll be a tzaddik, guess what? You probably, the odds are you're not going to be a tzaddik. <laughs> and therefore, there needs to be a secondary clause in your oath because you won't really be able to fulfill the first one. <laughs> so says the author, let's read. 
But that's because not every person is privileged to become a tzaddik. For you don't have a significant degree of free choice in this matter of whether or not you will truly experience a delight in God and earnestly abhor the bad on a consistent basis, which these two qualities being the hallmark of the tzaddik. To be a tzaddik, that's, that's beyond you. That's beyond your capabilities. So therefore, says the Alter Rebbe, since you may not succeed, you probably will not succeed. With the first oath, they therefore give you a second oath. At least don't be a Russia and be a Benini. Because for this, every person is granted free choice and agency. Every person can rule over the craving moods in his heart and conquer his impulses so that he won't be a Russia for even one moment of his entire life. And this applies both to refraining from doing bad as well as to taking every opportunity to do good. And good always refers specifically to Torah and namely the study of Torah which is equal to all the other mitzvahs. There you have it. Says the Alter Rebbe, first you are given an oath to be a tzaddik. But the only problem is you probably won't really be able to be a tzaddik in your lifetime. So then the angel gives you another oath. So then don't be a Russia. And what does it mean to not be a Russia? Be a Benini. Because that you could do. And that is why the oath is double, is double worded. Yes, Polina. But logically, if some people merit to be a tzaddik, it means that some people might deserve to be a rasha automatically and not have a choice either. Okay. Even a tzaddik could be a rasha. When we say that there are certain souls that are given the gift from above, that they have the soul of a tzaddik, it doesn't mean they're born a tzaddik. It takes a lot, a lot of hard work to become a tzaddik. But what it means is they could actually make it there. <laughs> if I try, I can't even make it there. Although, honestly, I never really tried. But I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm not a tzaddik. I'm pretty sure I don't have the soul of a tzaddik. <laughs> so nobody is born a tzaddik. Nobody is born a Russia. You are born with potentials, with capabilities, with choices in front of you. What are going to be your choices? So for most of us, our choice is between Russia or Benini. Some people have the choice between Russia and Satik, but not most of us. Am I, am I answering your question? Am I understanding your question properly, Polina? What you are saying is that we are not born a certain way. We just have a potential to become a certain way. Exactly. Exactly. That's the depth of Job's statement, you created Sadiqim. It's not that God created people who are, you know, robots, forced, you know, they're, they have no choice but to do these things. Every choice that we make in the realm of, of moral choices is all, is, you know, it's, it's our choice fully, 100% in our hands. No one's forcing anybody to be a tzaddik. No one's forcing anybody to be a Russia. So that's the idea. Be a tzaddik and don't be a Russia. Be a tzaddik, you probably won't get to. Don't be a Russia. That's for sure your goal. Now, what's the obvious question? 
There's an obvious question. <laughs> what is the obvious question, dear friends? The first part of the oath, be a tzaddik, you probably won't succeed in. So then they give you another thing. At least don't be a Russian. So what's the question now? What is the point of telling a soul who can't be a tzaddik? What is the point of forcing an oath upon a Benini to be a tzaddik? He can't be a tzaddik. Now I would imagine that the angels up above have a little bit of access to the files, to the medical files, and they know which souls are able to be a tzaddik and which souls not. Why would all of us, which all of us cannot be tzaddikim, to be a tzaddik is not within our capabilities. Why are we given an oath to, do, to be something that we can never be? <laughs> you understand the question? Why would you tell people be a tzaddik when they can't even do it? Yes, Gail. Because you could at least try. It's a goal to at least do your best to try. Oh, that's right. The author is going to say that although we can never really be a tzaddik, and even though our goal is to be a Benini, even a Benini needs to be very conscious of the lifestyle of a tzaddik and even has to incorporate some of the tzaddik's lifestyle into his or her own life. This can be a very profound idea. You cannot be a tzaddik, but you made an oath to be a tzaddik, which means that effort has to be put in and there's even a goal, there's even a point. There is value in you putting in the effort to try to be a little bit like a tzaddik. And that is going to be, that is going to be part three of this chapter. Page 124. Part three, create tzaddik moments in your life. Yet, says the author Ebbe, even though you will probably never reach the level of a tzaddik, nevertheless, this does not absolve you from your oath to be a tzaddik. You also need to set occasions to seriously take some counsel to develop a disgust for the bad like a tzaddik. Okay, we need to discuss this a little bit. Abainani is somebody who makes choices even though his emotions are not there. And what does the Alter Rebbe say? Forget about your emotions. Move on. You don't feel like doing this? Do it anyways. You want to do something which is inappropriate? It's inappropriate. Who cares if you want it? Just don't do it. But then the Alter Rebbe says, very, very healthy. Very healthy. For Abainani to at least do a little bit of it. Try to train your emotions to be in the right space. Try to train your emotions to have a disgust, an abhorrence to things which are negative and inappropriate and unholy. And even though you're never going to have it like a tzaddik, try to train your emotions to have an attraction to God and to holiness. And what the altar ever says is, you got to sometimes spend time and meditate a little bit. Meditate on things that will take your pleasures and try to dampen. <laughs> try to sober them up. Try to weaken the force of those pleasures. 
And the way to do that is by being a little bit proactive. So let's talk a little bit about our pleasures. What, what, what's pleasures? You know, all of our pleasures are very one-dimensional. It's like very primal. We see something that gives us, that has an appeal. And therefore, we see the appeal in it, and therefore we want it. And this is the magic of advertising. What do you do in advertising? You highlight the best benefits, <laughs> the highest level of pleasure that this object could give you, and then you market it to people. And then you hope that people get turned on by that. It's like, you know, what's a Coke? What's a Coke advertisement look like? A Coke advertisement has a cup of Coke that is that is sweating from cold, right? Beautiful ice cold cup of of Coke with a little lime in it, right? The Diet Coke advertisements have a little lime at the top, and they say this is gonna refresh your day. Oh, oh, and it feels so good. It looks so good, right? And then you'll have an advertisement with a beautiful burger. Oh, the the burger, the steak looks so good. The steak is sweating. Look at that. It's nice. It's juicy. It's beautiful. It's thick. This is a steak I want to eat. And then, uh, you know, in America, it doesn't really happen that much anymore. But how do, you, how do they advertise smoking? You show people smoking. It's so relaxing. It's social. It's beautiful. <laughs> okay, so you highlight the people. Now, what do you do <laughs> if you want to take a pleasure that somebody has and you want to you want them to stop it? You want them you want to turn them off from it. How do you do that? What you do is you do the opposite of advertising. Advertise to them the unpleasurable parts of it. So, for example, can you imagine if a Coke advertisement would list all the chemicals in a in a can of Coke? Please buy Coke. We include in this can these ten ingredients. That sound like they're poison. <laughs> That's bad advertising, right? That does the opposite. That's like, whoa, I, I don't know if I want to drink my Coke today, right? How do you advertise to people to stop smoking? All you got to do is show them a picture of what a set of lungs look like of a lifetime smoker. Ooh, you want your lungs to look like this? Go and start smoking. <laughs> and then, uh, so it's all about, you know, everything is two-dimensional. Every pleasure has what is good about it. And every pleasure has what actually makes it a little bit unattractive. <laughs> and makes you double, make a double take and say, yeah, maybe I actually don't want to do this. Okay. So, there is an interesting insight that the sages of the Talmud give. The sages of the Talmud say that whenever you are facing a temptation, a desire for something which is inappropriate, something which is sinful, try to meditate on the aspects of this pleasure which, makes it, which make it actually undesirable. So the example that the, the Talmud gives two examples. And the altar is going to bring both down. The first example is food. Food looks so attractive when we look at it. 
But we all know that 30 seconds after we eat it, we would throw up if we see what that food looks like. And we all know that an hour or two after we eat that food, it comes out on the other end and it's not that, that, uh, that appealing. So this food that was so pleasurable an hour ago is actually, if you look at it just from a little bit of a different perspective, it's not that appealing anymore. And the Talmud says sometimes it's healthy to have that kind of two-dimensional view to tamper those, uh, those things. You know, every person says this. You know, last night I went to a restaurant and I indulged myself, but I regretted it right after. See, that's the nature of all attractions. That's the nature of all desires. In the moment we want it and afterwards we say, oh, that was such a bad decision. Now I regret it. So the Talmud says, yeah, sometimes it's good to like, you know, think about the other end in advance. <laughs> you know that moment when you're going to regret it? Just, just, just think about that now. And sometimes it's a good way to get over like that primal instinct of like, oh, I, I want that. Let me go do that right now. No. The other example which the Talmud gives, which is a very interesting example, is about sexual desire. A man who has his eyes on a woman, of course, inappropriately. And he is attracted uh, due to her beauty. He is objectifying this woman's body. <laughs> There's no real relationship here. This is a this is a uh, simply a primal lust and desire. An inappropriate sexual desire. The Talmud says, you know what? You're objectifying this body. Let's go down that road. Let's keep on, let's keep on going. Let's start talking about the human body. And with the Talmud, we're, we're going to read the Talmud in a moment. Let's read. Let's read the Talmud. For example, says the Alter Rebbe, to follow the advice of our sages when encountering a forbidden sexual urge that we should look at the woman as a leather flask full of excrement. Focus on the, on the elements of the human body that are actually very not appealing. Which means, the Talmud says, you want to objectify this body? Go ahead. Go all the way. Why? Get yourself to a point where you realize that maybe this desire of mine is, is pretty base and pretty disgusting. Now, I just want to mention, you know, I once gave a Tanya class and I read this line. It was a few women there and they all freaked out. Look, the Talmud is sexist and misogynist. It's ascribing woman as a leather flask full of excrement. God forbid, this. the Talmud's not saying this is what a woman is. The, Tanya, the Talmud is saying if this is, if you look at a woman and you are getting all sidetracked and distracted by this primal urge, by her, by her superficial beauty and this is, then, then you know what? This is something you can meditate on that can start, that can start tampering and, and cooling down that, that desire. Which means think about things that maybe will make you... And, and I think we can all relate to the idea that there are certain times where we could look at a person and, um, and, and the things that they could do will, will be a turnoff for us. Right? Like, oh, you know, I see you doing that. Uh, now, you know, I, I'm a little bit disgusted by you. So the Talmud says sometimes it's, it's, it's healthy to, to think about these sobering things that will just simply help give context 
that when you are when you get hit with this primal desire to do something which is inappropriate you'll already have this type of healthy attitude and you'll already have a little bit of disgust in your emotions for such a type of action right let's continue reading as well as other similar advice and the same now let's go to food the same with all kinds of tasty foods and delicacies you need at times to see them end up as a leather flask filled with excrement <laughs> you know you just have to consider that this is uh, soon going to look very different and very not appealing you know there's even a story in the talmud the talmud says the talmud gives a story about the great sage and lay I, I see they have a question i'll get to you in a moment uh, this the the Talmud records a conversation between the great sage Rabbi Gamliel and the Roman emperor. Now I don't know which Roman emperor. I'm saying we could look it up and try to figure out which one it was. But you know, Roman emperors came and came and went. You know, a lot of assassinations going on there. Um, the Roman emperor challenged Rabbi Gamliel and said the Torah says that when God built Eve from Adam. God put Adam to sleep. Why couldn't Adam see and watch Eve be created? Wouldn't that have been a nice thing to do? So, the Rabbi Gamliel told the Roman emperor, you know, I'm going to respond to your question with a demonstration. And Rabbi Gamliel called in the royal chef. And said, World Chef, I want you to prepare a beautiful, nice piece of steak. But I want you to do it here, right in front of the emperor. I don't want you to do it in the kitchen. Right here. He said, okay. He brought out a massive side of a cow. He started carving out the meat and the piece. And then he grilled it and seasoned it and everything. And a half hour later, the steak was ready. And he served it to the emperor. And the emperor said, I don't want to eat it. Serving a little said, why not? So the emperor said, because I just saw how it's prepared, and I'm a little bit grossed out. <laughs> you see, so Rabbi Gamliel said, God wanted Adam to have a tremendous love and a tremendous respect and a very strong sense of dignity for Eve. And that maybe would have been compromised if he would have seen how Eve was created. You know, it's true about food. A lot of people will say they became vegetarian, they became vegan. You know when? After they went to a slaughterhouse and saw how a cow or a sheep or a chicken is slaughtered. Yeah, you know, it's very not appealing. And when you start considering the fact that that piece of chicken that I eat is, you know, this chicken over here running around, it, it, it really, you know, it gives a lot of perspective to your, to your food that you eat. I'll tell you something very interesting. The Talmud says something which is a very beautiful thing. There's a law in Judaism. The husband is not allowed to be in the room when a woman gives birth. The husband, you, you know why? Because it is very undignified to watch a woman in that position, in that space. And the Torah does not want a husband to lose his dignity for his wife and to start looking, even in the slightest way, it disgusts his wife. A man should never be disgusted by his wife, which is so sensitive of Judaism. 
And the, the, you should know, there's a little bit of a side point, a little bit of a digression, but statistics show, there, there are many studies about this, women prefer that their husbands are not there because women are very compromised, very uncomfortable, and it's simply not appealing. How is this helpful for a marriage if a husband sees his wife this way? So Judaism says stay out. And God did that for Adam. That when, when Eve was created, Adam was sleeping. Which means there's the ideas, there are certain aspects of certain desires which make it attractive for us. And there are certain things that can actually make us be very uninterested in them. So the Alter Rebbe says, quoting the Talmud, if there's ever a desire that's unhealthy, you know what you should do? Focus on all those things that make it very undesirable and try to get yourself emotionally disgusted by it. And let's read one more, one more paragraph and then I'll take some questions. So too, with all the pleasures of this world, a wise person sees where they lead. In the end, they all rot and become maggots and trash. How many people on their deathbeds start really, really regretting decisions they've made in life? Oh, you know, that was just in the moment. I was so short-sighted. But now when I'm about to die, oh, now all of a sudden you have context. You realize that maybe that was a bad decision. That was a poor decision. I was just running after a temporary desire, a temporary pleasure. So the altar says it's very healthy as a human to try to create and arouse these emotions to be a little bit in sync with the decisions we want to make. Get yourself disgusted by the things. Get yourself emotionally repulsed by the things that are unhealthy. Okay, let's take some questions. Leah, yes. Okay, so two things. One, I thank you for that explanation about Adam and Eve because I always thought he put Adam to sleep because it would hurt so much <laughs> to create Eve. I'm sure God had access to anesthetics. Okay. But yeah, you know, this is a, it's a very interesting piece of Talmud, how the, how the Talmud gives us his advice, which could be very much misunderstood. And I think it shouldn't be misunderstood. I think the opposite. I think the Talmud was so ahead of its days in the idea that the Talmud is advancing the concept that a relationship, even the physical, even the pleasurable parts of the relationship between a man and a woman, between a husband and a wife, can never be in an objectifying way. It has to be a deep and meaningful relationship, which is based on something deeper than just a, a, a superficial lust and desire for physical beauty and physical attraction. And we see here the altar that Talmud is saying that if you're if you're just if you're being driven by by this by this objectification of the, of, of a body, a physical beauty, you know, okay, you know, <laughs> if it's all about the body, then I've got news for you. I can make the body look very very unattractive. I can make you not want to hang out with this body, you know put it bluntly. So the, so the Talmud is very is very sensitive to this idea that the relationship should not be built upon this. It should be built upon something much deeper. Okay, yes, Noah. Yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to work it out in my head too. At first I thought when he said the Sofan, like in the end, like play forward the tape, like they say, play forward the tape and this is all going to be waste matter in the future. It reminded me of like, isn't there stuff like in Perkavos, like you know, remember that you're from a putrid seed, like things that would potentially depress me if I didn't also have some other uh, correlative idea like Chazal gives us. But now, yeah, I think, yeah, the emphasis is on disgust. That's what I'm holding on to. 
And then in this context is discussed and the current moment you should be, your emotions should be less excited about yeah. these pleasures. Right. But that, and then I, but I just realized that the reason he chooses sexual desire and food, I think is because like, he's trying to show like the, the Benoni is very, very far <laughs> in that situation from disgust. Like these are the most exciting things to me, like a physical me. And he's saying, just go to where the tzaddik is, which is the other extreme, uh, which is disgust. Like he's choosing those because, not because it's something about the woman or about the food, but because those are the strongest, that's the farthest place away from disgust that I, I should have, can imagine myself maybe. Well, I don't, I'll put know. it this way. The Yalta <laughs> Rebbe is showing us just how in tune he is with his audience. Mm, yeah. The Rebbe is, is which other tzaddik ever validated humans to this degree? It's really unbelievable. Very seen, yeah. We're seeing there. The author is literally like just being so honest and raw and real with us. Like, I get your human. I, you know, and I know exactly what you're dealing with. You know, I, I know exactly what the typical regular human person struggles with. And I'm going to address it with you. And we're not going to... Sh- and we're not going to hide behind it, and we're not going to be shamed. We're not going to be shamed to discuss it and to work through it. You know, it's very, it's it's, it's very special how how real the Atarev is here. You know, very honest. You know, there's there's no fake uh, 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 self righteousness over here. <laughs> there, there's no self delusion. It's like it's there's there's a very raw honesty which the Atarev meets his Hasidim with, and it's it's very refreshing. I have to say. You know, I, I know that, you know, we all have got these inner demons, you know, let's, let's discuss it. Let's work through it. Let's, let's find the right answers for these questions instead of, you know, hiding behind shame or embarrassment or, or an unwillingness to discuss these issues. It's very interesting. But okay, I, I, want, to con- I want to conclude the chapter. So let's go. So first of all, the author says, develop the emotions of disgust towards things which are improper. Then the author says, but then there's the opposite. Let's read. Then there's the opposite. In addition to your attempts to despise evil, you should also carry out meditations to delight and rejoice in God through contemplating, to the best of your ability, the greatness of the infinite. So you'll never love God, and you'll never have this experience of pleasure, of delight in God like a tzaddik has. But you got to do a little bit. Meditate. A little bit, try to get into that zone. So the author says we have to try to do a little bit and to meditate, to, to contemplate, and try to get ourselves into these two zones on the two opposite ends. Love for God, hate and disgust and repulsion of the evil, of the bad, of the inappropriate, of the unholy, of the sinful. And the author says, now one second, let's not fool ourselves. We're never going to get and develop any of these feelings like a tzaddik does. All right, let's read. Now, even though you know inside that you will never truly reach this level genuinely, but only in your imagination, right? Which means you could make like a temporarily you could make these emo- these emotions, and they're never going to be permanent, like a tzaddik. But the author says, nevertheless, you must do what you can do to fulfill the oath that may administer to you to be a tzaddik. You promised. You swore. That you'll be a tzaddik. Says the author episode, you gotta do your part. Ah, you won't succeed? Doesn't matter. You gotta do your part. 
And the altar says, page 125, and then God will do what is good in his eyes. Which means, whether you succeed or not is up to him, but you must do your part. So the altar says, I don't care if you'll never succeed in truly developing this love for God, or truly developing this disgust for evil. You promised, you do your part. But then the altar says, now something very interesting. So you got to do your part because you promised. But then says the author, but there's a further point here. Very interesting. Habit in every matter always dominates and becomes second nature. Every habit could become a second nature. So, if you make it your habit to meditate on abhorring the bad, then out of habit alone, it will become a little abhorrent in truth. Says the author, Abba. Like the famous line goes, fake it till you make it. Or, <laughs> psychology today, neuroscience would say today, build new neuropathways. Create a new nature. If you train yourself to think a certain way, if you train yourself to feel a certain way, you will indeed start thinking and feeling that way. You know, there's a very interesting idea that diplomats, diplomats are always brought back home to their home country. A diplomat is never allowed to stay in their host country for too long. You want to know why? Because psychology has proven that if a diplomat stays for too long in his host country, he'll become so accustomed to that culture and it will start compromising the integrity of his mission. That's the power of, of habit. Same is true with anthropologists. When they go to do studies, it, never for too long, for this reason. So the author of it says, there's, there's value to be a diplomat in a tzaddik's territory. <laughs> go, to, go, go to tzaddik territory. Maybe you'll start becoming a little bit of second nature. Says the author of it. Right? If you make it your habit to meditate on a boring debate, you know what's going to start happening? You'll, you'll start feeling it a little bit. You'll maybe be there a little bit. But the author says it goes even further. Let's read it. When you make it your habit to rejoice in your soul, in God, through this contemplation, in the greatness of God, then through your initiative below, you trigger an awakening above. When you show God that you're putting in this effort, sometimes that arouses God to help you from above. And here's an unbelievable little nugget of an idea. And perhaps... Just perhaps, a spirit from beyond will pour down upon you. Perhaps you will merit to host a kind of spirit that originates from some tzaddik. It could reside in you. Something like a fetus resides in its mother, enabling you to serve God with real joy. As it says, tzaddikim rejoice in God. We don't have a lot of record of this in Judaism, but Kabbalah discusses the idea that sometimes when there's a Jew who reaches a very high level of spiritual growth, a very high level of divine service, God gives them the gift of taking a little piece of a great tzaddik soul, a great tzaddik who once lived, and implanting it within this person's soul. 
and that gives them like a whole new boost. It's like it's like getting a blood transfusion. You know, I'm sure in medicine there's like a bunch of good examples we could give of this. You know, we give something from somebody else to you, which gives you new energy that you yourself didn't have. And Kabbalah describes it as waking up one day and just having new energies and new inspiration and new potential and reaching new heights. And it's something which you could feel. It's like you're getting a boost from, from outside. God gave you a little slice of another tzaddik soul and put it into your soul. And in that way, even a bainani could somehow jump from being a bainani into being a tzaddik or a little bit like a tzaddik. Very interesting phenomenon that the author makes very brief mention of. And the author concludes, and then if this happens, the oath that they administered, you should be a tzaddik, will be truly fulfilled. And dear friends, that is chapter 14. We have to know we could be a bainani. The work of the bainani begins now. We have to know we're not going to be a tzaddik, but we have to know that we made the oath to be a tzaddik, and therefore we got a little bit of tzaddik-like work to do. And chapter 15, the journey of being a bainani continues and begins. We'll learn what it means to be a bainani. Chapter 15 is a beautiful, beautiful chapter. Unbelievable chapter, next chapter. Just such a, such a beautiful chapter. So good evening, dear friends. Thank you for joining. May God bless you all. This was wonderful. We'll see you all next week, God willing.